Let's take our Bibles and let's head over to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 5. If you're joining with us, we're doing a series that's in the book of Acts. We're just going paragraph by paragraph, story by story, event by event. And as we're going through, we've come today to a sermon I'm entitling The Great Sanhedrin's Great Snafu. And we're going to talk about it, explain it. But let me start off, first of all, with this, okay? I'm going to put up a picture of somebody or some group of people and you with one word or two or three words give a description to that person. Okay? We don't have to be you know, out obnoxious with this but just play with this for a moment. Do you know who it is? Edison. One word description. Okay. You got it. Okay. Any descriptive terms? We'll move on. We'll move on. Okay. Hamas. Okay, okay. Firefighter. Okay, okay. Yeah, the great generation, right? Old? <laughs> <laughs> classic, okay. Old and classic are the same thing. So, okay. That's why a lot of us consider ourselves classics. Okay. Musk, Elon Musk. Rich is probably there. Here we go. This is nobody in particular. Just look at the thermometer. Cold. Now I'm going to preach. Okay. Okay, so we're coming and we're talking about the Lord and His disciples in the beginning of the church. And if I were going to take one word and put it over the believers that we've read about so far, I would put the word this, that they were faithful. And as we go through their experiences and we go through what, what happened to them and their example, man, there are some really fascinating truths out of chapter 5 that deal with people being faithful. In fact, let me set up the scene for this passage, okay, in chapter 5. What we're going to talk about in this first section is faithfulness will result in actively helping people. That's what's one of the first things that stands out in this story. Faithful people will help other people. You see that in Acts chapter 5 because it's the early church. This is the very group that James, who was a part of this, one of the brothers of Jesus, wrote and said that we know this, that faith without works is dead. Especially if you see your brother in need and if you do nothing, what does it profit if you say you have faith? And you don't help somebody out. So James made that a theme of his book because they were living it. They were doing that very thing. If you remember the story in the account, in chapter 4, we had read about how they had all things in common. That one spirit. We read about that in chapter 4 when you see about verse 32 and 33 and 34. That what they did is they were helping one another. They were selling goods even to the point of taking and giving assistance to all the new believers, people who had traveled in. And then we 
saw that because that was becoming very popular in the church, there was a couple that Satan influenced to say to them, why don't you get into the in mix and you can portray yourselves as giving lots and lots and lots and maybe you'll be considered to be very charitable and faithful as well. The problem was this couple, they lied about the amount that they gave. They presented themselves as we've just given everything to the nth degree and actually they lied about what they had sold and how much they or how much they sold it for and so in their hypocrisy God deals with this couple that we talked about last week that he struck them down and took their lives right in the church service and as a result the church is going to be affected. Everybody we read last week they were filled with fear inside the church and outside the church they were all of a sudden they had a healthy respect for God that you don't lie to God. And so the story continues that despite all of this has happened they continued to remain faithful. And I want to pick up in the story in the middle of chapter 5 and I want you to show their faithfulness in helping others and how it was practically done. One of the first things that stands out that they're helping people by teaching the word by giving people instruction. You read about that in this story where it says in chapter 5 verse 12 and the, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. That doesn't mean much to us unless we understand Solomon's porch was the around the temple proper there was, uh, there was courtyards, there was rooms there was an area, colonnade that had all, all different types of areas where the teachers would teach, where Jesus as a lad would have been interviewed by the, uh, by the uh, leaders when he was 13 years of age. There w- that would take place. And the indication here is that they're gathering regularly in this temple area which was given to religious purposes and they are teaching in these areas to the point that the leaders of the Sanhedrin who are controlling all this, they even make the comment down in verse 28, you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings. So they're teaching the Word of God. They're instructing people. They're helping in that way. But they're also helping physically. We saw how they gave of their goods. Now we see that they're also helping people with physical needs with the gift of healing that some of them possessed. We read that all of a sudden it reads in verse 12, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought. And then we read down a little bit further. Verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at the very least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them so as to heal them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem bringing other sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits and they healed every one of them. And so these people are doing lots of these the gifts that they had, using them to assist other people. Their assistance, I want you to catch this part, they was done indiscriminately. They weren't picking and choosing. The very words that we just read where it says beds and couches, the words in the original indicate, if you understand the culture, they're dealing with all different type of classes. They're dealing with those who slept on furniture who would be the more wealthy people. That's the the beds, the word that's used there. And then where it says the couches, the word is straw pallets for the most of the people who would just have something on the floor. 
So he makes, a, he makes it clear that they're helping people of all different levels or strata of society that they're giving assistance. In fact, they're helping people who are even outside of their city, outside of their culture, that they are, people are coming in and they're not having a bias. Remember, the Galileans were put down by the Judeans. But the people around Jerusalem, the Galileans, they're helping out the Judeans at this time. There is no animosity. They got the story of the Good Samaritan. It's all of a sudden living in their lives that they're helping out these people. And so they're doing these healings, they're doing these exorcisms. But there's some interesting thought that I had about these exorcisms and healings. And I dealt with some of the healings and the gift of healing in Sunday evenings in the last month. But I wanted just to revisit since it's right here this morning. I found it very interesting that in this case, when they were doing the healings, unlike some of the healers today, they made no prerequisite that these people have faith. There's nothing. In fact, the indication seems to be that they didn't even have to be a believer to experience some of these healings. And so today we have all kinds of of people going about who make ministries out of this healing, but they have all these prerequisites. And even in these modern times, there's, um, there's all kinds of different devices used to effect healings. Little add-ons to the healings. If you go in this passage, we say, okay, the healing could have been effected by Peter's shadow. But when you go to other texts, you find out that, wait a minute, there was times where healings were done by a mere touch. You go to other passages and you read that somebody was healed by touching Jesus' hem of his garment. You go to another text And healing was effected by Jesus using spit and mud and rubbing it on the eye. You go to other passages and they take handkerchiefs and cloths that the apostles bless and use them to effect healings. And then you go to another text that talks about anointing with oil. So which one is it? You know, in scriptures, there's no clarification. The point is they used multiple different things to effect a healing, but I don't think God used one device for a specific reason. He didn't want us to get caught up in a device. He wanted us to understand he could do a healing anytime, anyplace, any way he wanted to. So with the variety, it challenges me that says, okay, Modern day, which tool, and by the way, are these tools still being propagated? Oh yeah, oh yeah. If you buy us, you you send me money and I'll send you a healing cloth. If you do this, I'll do this. And And in our culture, isn't it true that we get caught up with devices? With some things that sometimes we put more stock into. That we get involved with more of an object. But all these objects in and of themselves, they're absolutely powerless. How can a cloth heal? How can spit and mud heal? How can oil heal? How can a shadow heal? In and of themselves, they are absolutely worthless when it comes to healing. Would you agree with that? Okay. So what is the point that he gives all this variety? Because I think what God is driving at, it's not an object, it's God. It's his power that brings the healing. And if there is any common denominator through all of these objects, if there's any common denominator that says, well, 
It's by God's power, but here's what you should do. Do you know what the common denominator that shows up frequently is? It's something that is harder than an object. Prayer. The common denominator that shows up, Jesus said, you cannot cast out these demons except by prayer and fasting. You know, the, the James, that whole text of James where we talked about already just a couple of weeks ago about the anointing of oil, the whole passage isn't about anointing oil. It's about doing what? Praying. But what is easier for us to grab onto? An object or praying? And I, and I suggest to you that many times in the modern church, we get caught up more with objects than we do the real work of being on our knees and praying and fasting. And so chew on that for a little bit. They did it. They were helping. They were involved. And we know prayer was an avid part of their ministries. We saw that. We're going to see it some more, that these people were praying before they ran into all these opportunities and challenges. And so what happens here is that they're helping by one they're teaching the Word of God. Two, they're helping by meeting some physical needs. But they're also helping others by giving out the Word of God. We have seen in this passage already that these people were involved in preaching and teaching, that they were told, no more, don't go out to preach anymore. They were arrested, if you recall. Just week, days earlier, they, they, John and Peter had been arrested, told, don't you speak in Jesus' name. Don't do it anymore. But then they went out and they spoke the word of God after they went back and told their friends. And they say, let's pray for boldness. And they go out and they speak the word of God. And we read in chapter 5, verse 14, that the believers are the more added to the church. In fact, there are multitudes of people responding to the gospel that's presented by these people. So what happens is they again get arrested because there's so many people being affected by the gospel. So many people are getting saved. And we read in verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is the sect of the, the group of the Sadducees. And verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison. And we read about what happens, that they they have done this. But we read later on, you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings. They continue to go out and proclaim the word of God. They are helping in all these different fashions. These people were faithful. They were faithful in helping others, in teaching, in assisting, in giving out the word of God, even though Satan had attacked them. And they had seen Satan attack their group. Even though some people disappointed them within the body. Ananias and Sapphira did not live up to what they claimed. And you know, in modern days, sometimes when people disappoint us, we say, that's it, I'm not going to serve anymore. Not these people. They, some people will say, I, I don't want to serve because there might be attacks and temptations. Not these people. These people were faithful despite satanic temptations, despite the disappointment from other people. And even if other people didn't respond, we Americans are so interested in numbers, numbers, numbers. If it doesn't give us numbers, then we quit. But these guys were faithful even though some people wouldn't want anything to do with them anymore because the demand was too high. The purity was too challenging. Ananias and Sapphira had been taken out because of their hypocrisy. And some people didn't want to even get involved anymore, but others did and responded. But overall, the, the writing, the description of these disciples, they're faithful. They were faithful. They were faithful. So what about you? I appreciate that you're faithful for worship. 
I appreciate that you come at 10.30 on Sunday mornings and sit for the worship service. That's great. But faithfulness goes beyond just sitting and taking in. I'm glad that you do it. But growing faithfulness demands that we contribute, that we get actively involved in ministry, not become and be always a passive taker, but to be an active giver, ministering to others in some way, shape, or form. Somehow, you personally getting involved in teaching the Word of God. Somehow, you getting involved and sharing the gospel. Maybe it's by taking traps. Maybe it's by getting in the reenactment. Somehow, you get involved with lending a hand, reaching out to others within the body who are struggling, some who are lonely, but doing something, really a card, a visit, a phone call, praying for people. What a ministry. Do not ever discount the, the impact of your praying for one another. For you saying, I'm going to give up some personal time, maybe on a Wednesday, and come and join in in a group prayer time to pray for other individuals and their needs. Helping out beyond your little circle, the ones that you like and you get along with, but jeopardizing even in a relationship of saying, maybe somebody won't appreciate what I'm doing as I share the gospel, but I'm going to be faithful. That's the call from this text, to be faithful in the sense of helping others. But I want you to understand this, that faithfulness also will result in some hostility. Oh, that's an encouragement. Once you tell us to do it, now you're telling us if we do, we might get into trouble. That's true. That is the Word of God. The Word of God makes it very clear by example and by exhortation that the world isn't going to like when you minister. The world doesn't like, and some of you have seen this. You've experienced this. Just what Jesus said. Go into the Bible and go back to the book of Matthew. Go back to Matthew, please, where Jesus is instructing his 12. And he's and actually his 70. And he's going to be sending them out. And we go all the way back to Matthew. I said 12, I meant 10. Matthew chapter 10. And follow along as what we read Jesus warning his disciples about. In Matthew chapter 10. Jump down to verse 17. After he has just said to them, I'm sending you out you know, amongst the wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He says in verse 17, but beware of men. They're going to deliver you up to their councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings because of me, for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. They will deliver you up. But when they do, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. He's referring to what he promises with the Spirit. According to John 16, he will give you, bring to remembrance all things to say. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. The father the child. The children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures is going to be one who is going to be rewarded. Go to John chapter 15. He is spending his last few hours with the disciples in John chapter 15. And as he is teaching them, he's talking about, I go to prepare a house for you. I'm going to build a heaven. I'm going to come and receive you. My peace I give unto you. In the midst of all that, he makes this comment to them. In John chapter 15, jump down again into the middle of his sermon, his teaching, down to verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated 
hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, well, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world's going to hate you. Remember the word that I have said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they keep my sayings, they will keep yours as well. That's the positive. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they don't know him that sent me. And then he goes on and talks about if I had not come, if not comes and spoken to them, they had not known their sin. But now they have no cloak. Their sin has been exposed. He that hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did, they had not seen their sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and the father. But this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled as it is written, they hated me without a really justified cause. But when the Comforter is come, I will send him unto you from the Father, and even the Father of the truth, which proceeds from me, uh, from the Father, and shall testify of me, even though Jesus knew his disciples, us, that we would, they would face some real dangers and problems by witnessing for him, what does he tell them to do in verse 27? Does he tell them to hide? Does he tell them to only share your faith within the four walls of the church building? No. He says, you also shall what? You shall bear witness. He does not tell them to give up. He says, you remain faithful, even though there's going to be some hostility. Well, when we come to chapter 5, the hostility We saw it already in chapter 4, but now it intensifies. Remember, in chapter 4, there had been an arrest, Peter and John. But now, the group of the Sanhedrin, they arrest these men because they've continued to be preaching and teaching the Word of God. So this is the second time that they're arrested. We know as well that the goal of the Sanhedrin is to stop excuse me, stop Christianity. That's that's never going to happen. What did Jesus say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what happens is they are going to make some decisions here to try to stop the church. It reminds me, and this is where I get the title, that the Sanhedrin, they made some foolish decisions. You know, the military, I did not serve, but the military uses a lot of acronyms, right? Where they use a little, you know, take the first letters. So according to an article, the word snafu, okay, is a military term. It means... Okay, something normal all fold up. Okay, in other words, bad decisions. It's it's gone wayward. Then they developed a secondary word that deals with it, the word fub, which means fouled up beyond belief. Okay, <laughs> the Sanhedrin displays that they are fub, that they are going to do a lot of snafus in this text. The Sanhedrin is really fouled up. Watch what happens here, okay? Now remember, I explained this once before, but the Sanhedrin is made up mostly of the Sadducees. That's one of the religious groups in Israel. They were the wealthy individuals. They were the ones who held the high priest's office. They controlled the temple. Um, there were some Pharisees, Pharisees, okay? The Pharisees made up the Sanhedrin. Pharisees and Sadducees. So there were some Pharisees, but not many. The Sadducees were religious liberals. I think this plays really important into what happens here. The Sadducees were liberals of our day. They didn't believe in most of the Word of God. They didn't believe in supernatural things like miracles. What were the disciples just doing? They don't believe in things like angels ministering around about us. What's God going to use? 
an angel. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's so ironic, God's humor. They were very pro-Roman so as to keep their power and their authority. They were disliked by most of the common people because they were looking out for number one, okay? So they, in their leadership, they were the political religious leaders of that day who really didn't have the people's interest at heart. And so what happens in this story, this same group was the ones who had insisted that Jesus died. And, and they had done that. They had led the crowd to Pilate's house. And they had led everybody chanting, you know, crucify, crucify him. It was this group. Now this group still has its authority. They had already arrested the disciples in chapter 4, sent, threatened them, told them don't speak. But the disciples went back. They prayed. They were f- filled with the Spirit again. They spoke with boldness. They did all those ministries of chapter 4. And so now they're arrested a second time. But this time it's way different. This time when the arrest took place, they didn't just take Peter and John. It seems to be that they take all of the apostles, all the leaders of the church this time. And this time, not only is the twelve arrested, they are beaten. They are physically beaten this time. We'll talk more about that in a minute. This time, the apostles, they escape from the jail. And when they escape from the jail, it is via an angel. This is God's humor. Watch what happens. It says in verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles. They put them in the common prison, but the angel, so they're there overnight. The angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and they taught the people. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have the apostles brought. But when the officers of the prison came and found them not in the prison, they returned, and they told the Sanhedrin, saying, The prison truly found, we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted, they were befuddled, of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and said, Hey, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the very temple and teaching the people. So when the captain and the officers, they went out, they brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should, be, should have been stoned. And so it's just, it's just funny that God uses an angel to get the apostles away from the Sanhedrin who don't believe in angels. And so he does that, and the angel tells them to go and do what? Get out of the prison and go do what? Preach. But wait a minute. Why did they get put in jail? Because they were preaching. So the angel says, continue to do what I told you to do faithfully, even though that's why you're arrested. So let's think about this for just a second. Okay? This is us for modern day. We should never be surprised when opposition comes. Because all who live godly shall suffer persecution. It shouldn't surprise us if family members get really ticked at you because you go to church regularly. It shouldn't surprise you when you try to give out tracts with your, with your gifts at Christmas that some family members will get upset with you, that you're trying to push your religion down their throat. It shouldn't surprise you that some of your coworkers are going to make fun of you. It shouldn't surprise you that some of the kids at school, because you say in school you believe in creation, you say in school you believe in moral standards, that some people would mock you. That shouldn't surprise us. And so when when it happens, we have to understand God doesn't change our mission when there's opposition. 
You know, so it's just like Israel right now. Everybody wants them to change their mission. But they are determined to do their mission because this is what they needed to do. The same thing is true spiritually. When God says, I want you to be witnesses, some would shy away and say, as long as everybody likes me, as long as I'm popular when I would. Jesus said that's not going to always happen. Some will respond, but some will be angry with you. Don't change your mission. But when I teach, not everybody likes what I teach in the neighborhood Bible study. It shouldn't surprise us that there's going to be opposition. May I give you an inside? Some of the greater opposition comes from within the believers groups. Yeah, in, in trying to live for Christ. But you and I need to remain faithful to the mission that God has given us. To be a light unto the world. That is, we need to be different from the world to give out this witness. And so don't be surprised, nor do you stop. You continue to do the mission while they do. So what happens here, it's almost as if somebody is saying, I got good news and I got bad news. So what happens is the disciples are released, they go out preaching, and in the morning the Sanhedrin gets together and says, you know, bailiff, go get the prisoners. And the bailiff comes back, because Sanhedrin doesn't know what the angel did that night, this guy comes back and says, oh, I got good news, I got bad news. The good news, our prison is really a good prison. It's still locked, it works. The bad news, the prisoners are gone. Okay. And then it's only, they go, what are we going to do about this? How did they get out? Everything was working. What's going to happen? And somebody comes up and says, hey, I got good news and bad news. Okay. I got the good news. Those prisoners are in the nearby temple. They're, they're within... Your hands reach. We can rearrest them real quickly. I got bad news. The crowds love them. Everybody loves them. And so, what the, the Sanhedrin says, chief of police, go and arrest him. And he goes, he? If I arrest him, what will the people say? And so we read that what happened is when he arrested them, he was very careful. It says in verse 26, when the captain and the officers brought them without violence... In other words, they were handling them with, yeah, why? What's the next phrase say? They feared the people. They feared the people. So they go and arrest them, they bring them back, and they set them before the council. This is when the Sanhedrin shows up as all kinds of snafus. That they are, they are so fouled up. Several reasons why I say that is, is because they are like Sergeant Schultz. Do you remember, anybody remember Sergeant Schultz? Okay, we all just showed our age. Okay. If the young people they here, they'd go, who? Okay, the show is Sergeant Schultz, his favorite lines were, I see nothing. I, I hear nothing. I know nothing. Okay. Even if it was in plain sight before him, I know nothing. Okay. That's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, where have the miracles been taking place? All over the place, in the streets. The Sanhedrin is, I see nothing. I know, that's true, they know nothing. Okay, so what happens in this story is the Sanhedrin openly just chooses to reject all the miracles. How do you, how do you not deal with the miracles? It shouldn't surprise us. Some people have agendas and they don't deal with reality. 
So here they are. They're saying, I don't know. We, we just deny the miracles. Something else that strikes me. They want to rearrest the apostles. They couldn't keep them in jail before. So we're going to rearrest them and put them back in jail? A lot of good that did. You know what strikes me? There's something absent in this story. When you read the, here in the story where it says, watch, watch the phrase. When they had, verse 27, when they had set them before them, okay, they, when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asks, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in, in this name? Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with doctrine and tend to bring this. There's a question missing. To me, this is an obvious question. How'd you get out of jail? Now, can you imagine the answer? An angel that you don't believe in. And how would they explain that? So, here they are. They don't even ask how to get out of jail. They're upset with the apostles. And look at that verse that I stopped at. And just kind of whispered through. They're upset for three reasons according to this passage. Okay? What did the apostles, why are they upset with them first of all? Did, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? In other words, they're mad because they didn't listen to him. We told you, you didn't listen to us. Then the next reason that they're mad is you have filled... Yeah, okay. You are preaching things we don't like you to preach. You're saying things we don't agree with. Third reason why they're mad. They're, they're being blamed. The, you're making us look guilty. Okay? What'd you say? They are, they are guilty. These, this Sanhedrin must be filled with old people. <laughs> they don't remember what they said just weeks... Well, I don't remember what I said an hour ago. Okay. The Sanhedrin has a... You know, they, got a they got a fub in their brain. Do you remember what they said just weeks before? Just weeks before, they're gathered at the, uh, Pilate's house early in the morning. They woke him up, and it says that chief persuaded they should ask for Barabbas. Now, I underlined words that you need to catch. Who was the ones who instigated this crowd? Them. Them. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the leaders. They persuaded the multitude to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor says unto them, which of the two should I release? And the crowd says, okay. Then Pilate said, well, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Crucify him. Okay. The governor said, what's he done wrong? What's he done wrong? But the crowd says, crucify him. And then you have this comment. Pilate could not prevail, could not convince them. He washes his hand and he says, I am in a, I'm innocent of this person's blood. Do you remember the next statement that's made? It is the crowd that answers and said, His blood be upon us and our children. What does this say in verse 28? What are they saying? You intend to bring... This man's blood on who? But you said you would. You said it was okay that his blood, his, 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 you're guilty of whatever happens. And now, this is short-term, long-term, every-term memory loss. <laughs> what a snafu. What, they blew it. You know the other thing that strikes me? They show no appreciation for the good that's been done for the people. I mean, seriously. What should they have said to the apostles for healing all these people? Thank you. 
keep up the good work? But isn't it interesting that when people are angry and really protecting their own self-interest, they don't care what good others are doing. All they're caring about is themselves. And so then what happens here is there's one other statement made in the text that I've glossed over. I haven't mentioned, I didn't even read it when we went through the text. The reason they did this is stated at the very beginning of the story. In verse 17, it says, The high priest rose up and all they, the Sadducees, they were filled with, my King James reads, indignation. The original language, the word is envy. Got another word for it? They're jealous. Pure jealousy. They don't care about the good. They deny the miracles. They don't even want to know how they got out of jail. It's all about who? Themselves. Themselves. Good thing we don't have that type of leadership in churches today. Right? It's just amazing. And if you look at the story and you'll find that they don't even want to say his name at times. They just say, this man's name, his name. They do say it at the end, in Jesus' name. But they're so spiteful against Jesus, they can't even pronounce his name. They're so angry. So it's a fascinating account that what happens is this hostility. Well, the apostles, they respond. That Peter responds and says, then it says in verse 29... He says, we ought to obey God rather than men. And we love that verse. By the way, is that a good verse for us to be keeping in mind? Oh, absolutely. But let me, let me give you a little bit of a caution. God has set up authorities and obeying authorities is part of our Christian walk. God's institutions include family, church, and state. In the case of the last, Peter himself wrote unto us, honor the king. The biblical writers consistently teach that we must recognize authorities as being established by God. We must respect them. In Acts, the court manners of Peter and Paul are above reproach. And we must submit to the authorities providing they do not contradict God's word. Ultimately, we submit to the state out of our submission to Jesus Christ. This act includes obeying things like speed limits, stop signs, paying income tax, adhering to building codes, renewing our fishing license, all out of reverence for Christ. For we don't have two masters. But there are times when a Christian cannot obey the state and should not. I'm not suggesting that we rebel when we simply dislike a law that makes us uncomfortable or because we don't like the leaders who push that law. I'm talking about acting wisely on occasions in which the state forbids what God requires or sanctions what God forbids. Going against the state, of course, may lead to consequences. Many biblical examples of holy disobedience are evidenced by the Hebrew midwives, Daniel, Esther. They remind us of the cost that is worth the sacrifice. Here in Acts chapter 5, the apostles chose civil disobedience for an obvious reason. They could not stop preaching the gospel. Nevertheless, the apostles don't respond to the authorities with hate speech or violent demonstrations. They simply keep declaring the good news as people of the cross should. And notice that Peter and the apostles take advantage of every gospel opportunity They see this confrontation before the council as an an occasion to proclaim the gospel once again. Because what does Peter do? 
he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and the savior for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. And so what you have here is these disciples are continuing to be faithful even in the face of hostility. And his message is really what Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is exalted in heaven. In fact, this is one of the first times you read the statement, he's seated at the right hand of God. It was mentioned in an earlier sermon, but now he repeats it. Jesus and the word for prince means the one who goes before. He's the point man in the military. He's the one who's paving the way. He's the savior. The Jews knew what savior meant. They understood this concept. They understood it in a medical way. The person who, who rescues somebody from death with medicine, he's a savior. They understood and they have accounts where they called somebody a savior who rescued somebody who was in imminent danger. Jesus is the savior. He is the one who provides forgiveness of sins. He's the one who dispenses the Holy Spirit. They know who the Holy Spirit is. They've read about him in their Old Testament. They know all these things that, that are spiritually relating and saying Jesus Christ is God in heaven. And, and the apostles exalt Jesus. They lift him up just like, just like you did this morning in the songs that you were singing. Just like the music that the choir and the special did. They were lifting up Jesus. All about Jesus and his greatness. Well the apostles lift up Jesus and what's the response? What's the fub or the snafu in the mind of the Sanhedrin? Notice the next verse. When they heard that, they jumped up and said, praise Jesus. No. What did they say? They were cut to the heart and they took counsel to do what? We want to kill them. We want to kill these guys. In other words, their indignation moved to, their jealousy has now in, become rage, anger. They want to do something against them. And then there's a man who all of a sudden enters a story that all you don't know much about. He's, he's Gamaliel. He's a very prominent Pharisee of that day. He was Paul's teacher, as you read. His grandpa was Hillel, who started one of the schools of the Pharisees. Very, very, very uh, dominant at the time of Jesus' ministry. Well respected. They even wrote about him in the Mishnah, which was a collection of rabbinic writings about how he was the, you know, the pillar of, of leadership. Anyway, he is going to advise this group, do nothing. Slow it down, just wait. And do nothing, don't act rashly. Many times that's really good advice. And uh, for many people, they look and say, this is great advice. But let me explain something to help you to understand where I'm coming from. He talks about two men a Thutis and a Judas. He mentions them briefly. We don't know much about them out of history. All we know is that, that these two characters showed up. This Thutis, he was uh, saying, let's revolt against Rome. Don't worry about it. I have miraculous power. I'm like Moses. I'm the second coming uh, of Moses. I'm the Messiah. And when we get in trouble, if we get in trouble, I'll take you down to the Jordan River. We'll slap the water and we'll escape. Well, they were being chased by the Romans, the, the account goes. And when they came to the River Jordan, he slapped it several times. And guess what? The water never parted. But guess who did depart? 
Okay, he got arrested and so what happened is he departed this life. The other guy, Judas, is, there's a couple different possible characters. This guy also came along, was a messianic leader. There was two of them that did this. And uh, we think this is the one that he came along and said, hey, to show you that you're going to follow God, stop paying taxes. <laughs> Why'd you laugh? <laughs> is that going to get you in trouble? Yeah, okay. It's God's will that I don't pay taxes anymore. Try that one out. Okay. So he did that and the result was we don't know. Other than his group was, uh, was chased by the Romans, they disappeared. His grandsons, they lead in some of the revolt that ends up with Jerusalem's total destruction in 70 AD. But this guy basically disappeared because we know from Gamaliel's comment he, was, he wasn't effective in his rebellion. So many believers stop and say this is just wonderful advice. Tremendous advice as if it comes out of the mouth of God. This is advice coming from a Pharisee who is rejecting the truth who is being very pragmatic and logical, who doesn't have the Spirit of God in him. This is coming from a smart man who has rejected miracles. This is coming from a smart man who compares Jesus to a bunch of rebels, not spiritually smart. This is a man who says the way that we make decisions is if it works, it's good. That's called pragmatism. Success is never the standard or the canon for what's right or wrong. Whoever has the most money, that doesn't make them the standard we follow. Whoever has the most numbers, that doesn't mean they're always the right. Yes, no? Does that make sense? So be careful when you're thinking about taking counsel out of the Word of God, taking it from an unsaved man's statement and in a setting where he's rejecting truth. And understand, the, San, the Sanhedrin had one job, well, two jobs, that relate to promote and protect the truth. This time, they don't care about the truth. They aren't caring about any of the truth. Who are they caring about? Just themselves, their power, their prestige. And so they listen to him, Gamaliel, and it works out for the disciples at this moment. They are taken away and they're beaten. And they're told, don't speak about Christ. You need to understand this beating. This is the beating that Deuteronomy talks about. This is the beating that's this idea of 40 stripes minus one. This is a severe beating that takes place. This isn't something like they slapped your hand. These guys are whipped. Do you remember how Jesus was whipped, but he had all these other things added to it? They're whipped in that same fashion. This was going to be an excruciatingly painful situation for the disciples. And what do they do? What do they do? So they're whipped, they're beaten. We read in verse 41. It says, They departed from the presence of the council, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. How do you do this? How do you do this? How do you rejoice when you're physically beaten? We have a car problem when we struggle with rejoicing. We get a bad grade and we, we, we become depressed. How is it that they have the boldness to stay in Jerusalem and we struggle giving one track out to a clerk? How is it that they stay right there where they could be rearrested by a group of madmen who want to kill them? And we would rather just shelter in behind the walls of these four, build, these four walls and not take our faith outside. 
And we struggle. We all struggle. We struggle to, to be open in our faith. How did they do that? What was different about them? I suggest to you this truth about faithfulness. Faithfulness, if you're faithful, it will result in helping you to grow spiritually. See, if I can do it this way, okay? One step of faith energizes another step of faith. Another step. And another, it's, it's like a staircase. If we can do it this way and just illustrate it. So here we are on the bottom level of our Christian life. They were there. And they, were, they said, okay, let's get involved. We'll start helping one another. And they got active doing it. What did that do? That all of a sudden helped them when the angel released. That gave them energy to all of a sudden go and preach in the temple. And what did that do? That helped the next day when they were rearrested to be bold in front of the Sanhedrin. And what did that do? That helped them that when all of a sudden when they were counted, that when they were beaten, they were able to count it all joy. And what did that do? That helped them to be even more faithful witness. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Okay? You sit here, you listen to these things, and you say they are good things. But all of a sudden this week you say, I'm going to act upon it. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go minister to somebody. I'm going to go and see somebody who needs encouragement. I guarantee you, I guarantee you when you go and visit some of those shut-ins or those widows, you will get more of a blessing than you are to them. And then you say, I'm going to give out a tract. I'm going to try that. And I guarantee that as you give out a tract, your insides will go, that wasn't so bad. That was kind of cool. And then you might even be bold enough after that to say, I'm going to talk to one of my classmates at school. And you get to share about Jesus. And whenever you get to talk about Jesus, what does it do? It energizes you to want to do more. That's the beauty. That's the, that's the, oh, the nature of Christianity. Service for Christ's faithful service will energize even more faithfulness. You want to grow? Well, do something. Become faithful in helping others. Teach, reach, assist. Oh yeah, you're going to get some, you're going to get some people that won't like it, but what's going to happen is you will be energized to want to do even more for Christ. So the same thing is here. What happens to these guys? They, they get energized to say, oh, this, you know, we were counted. Okay, how do you count yourself worthy? Why would it say they rejoice they were counted worthy to suffer? What, what in there? Why would they be able to say, God, thank you for this beating? What about, what about it? What does that mean, worthy to suffer for his name? They love the Lord. That's true. What were they thinking? I know some of you are thinking, they're nuts. What's that? Christ was beaten for them? What had they been told? What is going to happen? You're going to suffer persecution. The world's going to hate you. What does this show them? The world has seen Jesus in them. The world is seeing something in you. The world is looking and they... You've been faithful enough in following that, that it stirred up others. You must be doing something good here, buddy. That all of a sudden, this proves just what Jesus said, that people won't like your preaching. In other words, you're preaching something that they don't like. 
which means you're preaching the truth. Okay? Is that right? Because I could preach lots of things that would get lots more people here. Right? And people would like it. You don't like it when I'm saying, get out witnessing, go visit. That, that kind of rubs wrong. But if I just preached, you're all good. You are so wonderful in everything you do. Okay, do people like that type of thing? What is it doing? It's tickling their ears. And so when people get upset, usually what it's meaning to us is, at least we're on the right track. We're getting some response. That's, so they respond that way. And so they end up, they rejoice, and then they go out preaching. They do evangelism. That buddy, if you want to do a study on this one verse alone, go ahead and do it. Their evangelism was daily. Their evangelism was not just in the building. They witnessed of Christ outside of the religious center. Their teaching and preaching was all about Jesus Christ. It wasn't about their stuff or themselves. It was about Jesus. And they focused on Jesus. So in wrapping it up, here's what we came to. We said these people were people that, if there's one term, they were faithful. Their faithfulness, it was seen. They were actively doing, helping others. It created some hostility. But it helped them to continue to grow even further so they could rejoice, so they could even have more boldness in witnessing. It's a wonderful story. It's a blessed story. And I started with saying, give me one word to describe all these different peoples. let's, Let's turn this for a second as we close. Let's turn this. If somebody wrote your story this week, they wrote a book about you and the way you live Christianity, what one word would they put over it? If they preach a sermon about you, they told stories about you, what word would they put over you? Would they say faithful, fickle? Would they say you are inconsistent but you're, or you're loving? Would they say a joyful person or a bitter person? Would they say you're a blessing to be around? Or would they say preaches one thing, does another? More importantly, let's ask this question. How does Jesus describe you? Father, help us not just to be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of it. Help us to take to heart faithfulness in our life because you are so faithful to us. Help us to let you have your own way in all that we do. We pray this, we sing this together. In the name of Jesus Christ, have thine own way.